Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome to The Full Ratchet, where we cover both the tactics and strategies for investing in startups from the angel and VC practitioners. I've received lots of good thoughts and ideas over the past couple of weeks that are very helpful. Thank you for that and keep it up. It's very easy to connect with me by email. It's nick at thefullratchet.net or by jumping on the blog and hitting the contact button. I've also spoken with a number of successful founders lately that have had tremendous impact in the startup world and have been willing to do an interview. While I'm honored that that's the case, I'm going to stick with interviewing the investors at this point. On occasion, I may invite another key player in the ecosystem, as discussed on episode four with Howard Tolman, to illustrate their role in the industry. But regarding the founder side, I found a number of great shows that interview entrepreneurs. It is a critical part of the discussion, and I really value the startup side of the table. They are, in fact, the lifeblood of this industry. Ideally, I'll not only be an investor, but also driving the growth of a startup myself someday. But I think there are others that are doing a great job addressing the founder perspective, and I'm not trying to make that the focus here. Of course, the caveat is that there are many founders that have parlayed their success into angel investing. If that's the case, it's a great fit for this format, and I think some of the best insights come from those that have the dual perspective of both investor and founder. Speaking of which, I will be interviewing Gabriel Weinberg, founder of DuckDuckGo, in the coming weeks because he has an inspiring approach to angel investing and shares his investor thoughts and learnings on his blog. Now, if you run a startup and would like to discuss your fundraise, I'm happy to chat and always appreciate the deal flow. So if you're looking for input on an investment, absolutely reach out. Okay, enough talk about the show itself. Let's jump into today's topic, uh, one that I've been excited to discuss since beginning this whole process. That topic is the term sheet, and I can't think of a better guest to weigh in than Brad Feld. Of course, for this critical topic, we had a bit of a spotty Skype connection, so there are a number of audio issues across the interview. I promise I do not have Brad on auto-tune, but if you stick with it, the content from Brad is more than worthwhile. Uh, It's a bit ambitious to cover this robust topic in one episode, but we trimmed some of the standard guest info questions at the end of the interview in order to address the key components. And to frame the term sheet discussion, Brad thinks about the two most critical components, which are economics and control. The six elements that comprise the economics category include number one, price, number two, liquidation preference, number three, pay to play, number four, vesting, number five, the employee pool, and number six, anti-dilution. 
And the four elements in the control category include, number one, the board of directors, number two, protective provisions, number three, drag-along, and number four, conversion. Now, there are a number of other terms that make up the term sheet that don't fit into the economics or control categories. Uh, Many consider them less critical than these fundamentals, but they are still important, and we will address them on the show in the future. All right, enough of the setup. Let's get into the interview on the term sheet. Today, we have Brad Feld with us. He is co-founder of Foundry Group and also has a great blog called Feld Thoughts over at Feld.com. Brad, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So before we jump into the topic, can you walk us through your background and how you got into the venture business? Sure. I started a company in uh, the late 1980s when I was in Boulder. I was actually, or sorry, in Boston. I was actually in school at the time. I was a self-funded business that I ran for seven years uh, with a partner. Uh, we grew it to a couple million dollars in revenue and then sold it to a public company in 1993. I was at that public company for a couple of years. During that period of time, I made about 40 angel investments in early stage tech companies uh, with some of the money that I made from the deal. So between 94 and 96, I made a bunch of investments which were effectively internet companies. At the time, we, weren't, we were calling them software companies. That evolved into me accidentally ending up co-founding a venture capital firm uh, with some guys from SoftBank. I was one of the affiliates. I was doing angel investments, but also working with this group from SoftBank on some of their investments, along with a couple of other people who were affiliates, which included uh, Fred Wilson, who now is a partner uh, at Union Square Ventures, uh, and Rich Levendov, who is a partner at Avalon Ventures, both whom are good friends, and we've continued to invest together. So you know, I, I woke up one day and was part of uh, a venture capital firm that ended up being called Mobius Venture Capital. And we had a very successful fund that we raised in 1997. We raised a much larger fund in 1999, uh, which was a disaster. Uh, and then we raised an even larger fund in 2000, which has ended up doing mediocre. Um, but, you know, sort of accidentally stumbled into being a VC versus a deliberate path. That original software company, did you guys do a fundraise? No. Uh, the company is called Feld Technologies. It was named after my dad, sort of tongue-in-cheek. We had uh, 10 shares of stock. The th- there were three owners. We invested $10 in the company. I got six shares of stock. My partner, Dave, got three, and my dad got one. And when we sold the company, we still had 10 shares of stock outstanding. Fortunately, they were worth a lot more than a dollar at the time. But we never raised any money. We just bootstrapped the business. It turns out that we did effectively raise $20,000 from a credit line that my dad personally guaranteed. It wasn't really used very intelligently. So we started the business. We hired some people. The first month, we lost seven or $8,000. The next month, we lost $10,000. And we very quickly realized we couldn't keep doing that. So we fired all the people. It was just my, my partner, Dave, and I. And from that point forward, every month over the seven years, we made a profit. Sometimes we made a dollar. Sometimes we made $100,000 profit in a month. But we always focused on making uh, profit and positive cash flow from that point forward. Well, good. So today we're talking about the term sheet. Uh, very excited to dive in and cover a lot of material. And I've teed up the major elements in the intro. So let's start out with the economics of the term sheet. First one is price. An episode was recently launched on valuation where I interviewed Jeffrey Carter of High Park Angels. So we won't spend a ton of time on valuation today, but can you start us out with a primer on valuation and highlight some of the factors that impact valuation? Sure. And, and I, you know, I've written extensively about this in the book I wrote, Venture Deals, yep. uh, with my partner, Jason Mendelson. And, and we really believe that there's 
especially in early stage investment, there's really only two things to focus on, which are economics and control. And interestingly, I think people focus on price as the primary driver of economics, but it's only part of it. If you think about price per share or if you think about valuation, you know, people say, what's the valuation of your business? The, the very first thing you have to understand is whether they're talking about the pre-money valuation or the post-money valuation. Sure. And I would say that classic problem, especially for first-time entrepreneurs, is the entrepreneur is generally talking pre-money and the investor is generally talking post-money. So understanding that the difference between those two can be quite significant, right? A million-dollar investment on a $3 million post-money valuation is 33% of the company, right? One over three. And a million-dollar investment on a $3 million pre-money valuation is only 25% of the company or one over four. So price is a piece. The option pool that exists is a piece of this economics and the price, essentially whether the option pool is pre-money or post-money. So does the investor ask you to allocate 10% or 20% of the company for unissued options for future employees? So let's take the 10% number against a 4 million post, right? That's essentially $400,000 of value that gets put into the valuation and pushes the pre-money valuation down by that much. Obviously, if it comes after the deal, then it's just additive and the new investor and everybody else takes the incremental dilution of additional employees. Another thing that plays into economics is liquidation preference and the nature of the liquidation preference. So if you have a liquidation preference that's what's called non-participating, it means that your investors get uh, in a downside case, they have the choice of either getting their money back or converting into shares and getting the percent ownership of the company. And in an upside case, they take the shares, but in a downside case, they might take their money back. In a participating preferred stock structure, what that means is that the investor gets their money back and then gets their percentage of the company. So it's extra juice on top of the deal, which you know can have pretty material impact on the outcome and who gets what, depending on how much money is raised and how big the preference is. So just focusing on price per share uh, as the only metric is often uh, illusory. Yeah, and I wanted to get into that economic term of liquidation a little bit. Can you give us an example that illustrates both preference and participation? Sure. So let's say you've raised, uh, let's use some decent sized numbers, but not enormous ones. Let's say you've raised over the life of the business, $10 million. And let's say that that $10 million that you've raised owns 50% of the company. Okay? And the other 50% is owned by the founders and the employees. If it's a simple liquidation preference, then the investors have the choice of getting their $10 million or 50% of the company. So in the case where you sold the company for less than $10 million, it'd obviously take the $10 million and the founders would get nothing. If you sold the company for $14 million, the investors would have the choice of taking $10 million or 50% of the 14, which is seven. So they take the $10 million. So your sort of break even point would be a $20 million deal. If you sold the company for $50 million, the investors would take 50% of it or $25 million and the founders would get $25 million. That's, that's the non-participating scenario. Got it. In the participating scenario, the investors get their $10 million back first and then get 50% of the company. So remember the break point of the last time was $20 million, right? That's the point of indifference. Anything above 10, uh, $20 million, the investor is going to take 50%. Yep. And everybody else gets 50%. In the participating case, let's go back to that $14 million situation, right, where the investor would take their 10 and so 10 would go to the investor – and four, in that case, would go to the founders and the employees. 
in a participating preferred structure, the first 10 million goes to the investors. So the investors get 10 and then they get 50% of whatever's left. So that 4 million. So in that case, 12 would go to the investors and two would go to the employees. In the $20 million case, 10 would go to the investors and then you'd split the remaining 10 50-50. So five would go to the investors. So they'd end up with 15 and the employees and, and founders would end up with five. If you got to a $100 million exit, $10 million still goes to the investors. So they get their $10 million, and then you split the remaining 90 50-50. So 45 would go to founders and uh, employees, and in total, 55 would go to the investors. So at high valuations, that preference matters less and less. I should say high valuations relative to the amount of preference, it matters less and less, but it still matters. But at low valuations or mid-case valuations, it can have a very significant impact. Now, there is a notion of, I'm giving you both ends of the spectrum, a preference that does not participate and a preference that fully participates. There's another structure, which is that you can have a preference that participates up to a percent return or up to a multiple return. So let's say it participates until you've gotten three times your money back. So if you sell the company for more than three times your money, uh, more than a return of 3x, then there's no preference. It's like so, a cap on participation. Correct. And so in the $100 million exit, well, the investor is getting more than three times their $10 million. So they would simply get $50 million and, you know, they're 50%, and the, which is a 5x, and the entrepreneurs and the founders would get uh, $50 million or 5x. So you can have lots of different flavors of these preferences. In addition, make it more, even more complicated, as you raise additional investment, each of your series of stock might have different preference characteristics. So one of the things we try to do as early stage investors, and we really encourage all early stage investors to do, is to not have a participating preferred structure early on. Because usually the terms that you have early get inherited as the company grows. So if you're a small investor, let's say you're part of a million dollar round, and then the company ultimately raises 20 or $30 million, the amount of return you get from that participation is dwarfed by the later investor's participation. And in a lot of cases, as an early investor, it's in your, you know, in your interest not to have participation anywhere in that stack. And so by not having it at the beginning, you set a trend. I think a lot of investors don't think it through, especially at the early stages, to what the real implication on outcome is. Got it. So you can get these stacked participation situations where all the later investors are first ones on the stack to get paid out their participating amount. That's right. And, and you know, again, as, a, as the amount of preference increases, the amount off the top increases. So the returns for the earlier investors correspondingly decrease. All right. Well, I'm going to take these examples that Brad gave us today, and I'll include those in the show notes with the numbers so that if you want to circle back, you can do that. All right. Let's move on to pay to play. Can you talk about pro rata rights and outline what a pay to play provision is? And can you explain why this is particularly bad for angels and or early stage friends and family investors? Sure. Well, there's two very different things. Um, uh, The pro rata right, I would actually say is a good thing, but the pay to play is a bad thing. What a pro rata right is, is it, it means that in future rounds, you have a right to invest the amount of money in that round to maintain your ownership percentage. Now, the calculation for pro rata, uh, depending on how it's worded, can be a little sloppy. But the general way to think about it is if you've invested in a company and you own 1% of the company, 
in the next round, whatever the financing is, you have the right to invest the amount of money so that you still have 1% of the company. That's the simplest way to think about it. Yep. I actually um, wrote a blog post on that last week. So Okay, good. So the idea of having uh, pro rata rights for an early stage investor who wants to invest throughout the life of the company and maintain their percent ownership is a good thing for them. And you know, for the entrepreneur, it probably is an easy thing to give the investors. You'd like your investors if they want to keep investing, the chance to keep investing. Yep. There, there are some angel investors or, or seed investors. Uh, when I invest as an angel, I explicitly don't care about my pro rata right because I don't continue to invest in the company. I, I make my investment as an angel. And I essentially reserve 100% of the money that I invested. So if I make a $25,000 investment, I have another $25,000 in my head allocated for that company. And there are certain cases where I'll put that money in. The company hasn't made quite enough progress to get to the next round, but I'm happy with what they're doing. I have some additional capital that, that I can give them. But generally speaking, once they've raised the next round, when I'm investing as an angel versus as an institutional VC, I only make that investment that first time. That's been part of my strategy. So I think understanding what you're angel investor strategy is in terms of pro rata matters. Now, when you start talking about pay to play, you're actually dealing with a different situation. So pay to play is language that basically says, if you don't invest in this round, you will lose something. And the typical thing that people lose when they don't invest in a future round under a pay to play provision is they lose their preference. So let's go back to the case where you're an angel investor in a company, you've invested whatever number, $25,000, $50,000 as part of a million dollar round, and you do it as a simple preferred stock. So you don't have a participate, it's just a simple preference. And as a result, you've got $25,000 liquidation preference for your $25,000 investment. That Let's say that there's a pay to play provision in that financing. The next round that happens, you have to write your check for whatever your pro rata is or you'll lose your preference and your stock will be converted into common stock. That's a simple situation. Now, there's lots, lots of nuances around that. The nuances can include, for example, an investor introducing in a later round a pay-to-play provision. You'll often see these happen in situations where companies are distressed. So it's a classic form of a later stage investor, you know, or even a venture capital investor introducing a term because a company's struggling and to try to motivate the early investors to write a check so the company can raise more money. So they're, they're kind of opposite sides of the two things. In general, if you're an angel investor who uses the strategy that I use, which is not to follow on in future rounds, you don't like pay to play because when a pay to play happens, you have to keep writing checks. Sure. The reason I don't care about my pro rata is that most people who introduce a pay to play or do any sort of a down round uh, on a company almost by definition extend pro rata rights even if you don't have it because you're trying to raise as much money as you can from the existing investors. And in some cases, if I like the company, uh, you know, I'll participate in that later round and continue to play. But those terms actually really muddy the water in terms of the dynamics. Interesting. So on one side, we got pro rata, which is a right to invest and press your winner. And on the other side, you've got pay to play, which is a requirement to invest or you lose some sort of provision or opportunity. Exactly. Correct. Good deal. Next item is vesting. What do you find is the standard regarding a vesting provision in a deal? And why is it important for investors and entrepreneurs to set up a fair vesting situation? 
Yeah, so the default vesting position that's been going on since I started making investments in the mid-90s was that uh, stock for founders as well as employees vests over four years, and uh, that vesting typically happens either uh, monthly or quarterly, sometimes annually, but usually monthly or quarterly. And there's often a thing called a cliff or a one-year cliff, which means that until you're there for a year, you don't get anything, but after a year, you get a full year. So your first sort of vesting point is that full year. Occasionally, you'll see different things with founders than uh, the broad employee base that you're hiring. So founders sometimes will have an additional chunk of their equity already vested. So let's say you've been working at the company for uh, there are three of you and your co-founders and you've been at it for a year or two before you go raise money. When you go raise money, you know, you get a year's credit on your four-year vesting schedule. So one out of the four years is vested and the rest of the three years vests over the next three years. You see that kind of structure sometimes. Uh, you also see what's called acceleration on change of control. The most common is double trigger acceleration, which means that if the company gets acquired and you are terminated within some period of time, uh, you get some acceleration. And that acceleration could range from a year to all of your stock. Sometimes you see what's called single tr- trigger acceleration, which is that when the company gets acquired you before the deal closes or at, at the point at which the deal closes, you get full acceleration on all of your stock or If you have single trigger, that's a year. You get a year of acceleration. So those are the nuances that you see. I have really come to believe over thousands of deals that acceleration, sorry, that vesting actually is more important in terms of the dynamics between the founders than between the founders and investors. And I've run into this over and over and over again where, you know, founders, when they start a company, say, we're going to be here forever. We're working forever together. We're never, ever, ever, ever going to split up. And, you know, six months or a year or 18 months in, uh, one of the founders leaves. And, and it could be because they get fired. It could be, you know, and they get fired by their other founders. It could be that they decide they want to go do something else. It could be something in their life changes. It could be something unrelated to the business. It could be that they're just tired and bored of the business. And it really sucks if you don't have vesting in that situation if you're one of the remaining founders. So let's assume that there was no vesting and there's three founders and a year in, one of the three founders leaves, just leaves. Like, I, you know, I put my year and I'm out of here. I'll see you. I've decided I'm moving somewhere. I'm, I'm moving to New Zealand and, uh, you know, you guys are on your own. <laughs> yeah. The other two founders are working their asses off, right, for the same stock. And it's just not fair. The, there's really no good way to get that stock back from the founder or some portion of the stock back from the founder. And, and sure, the, you know, they might have salaries and things like that, but the real economic value is that equity. So vesting gives you a mechanism so that if somebody leaves or is forced out to at least have, you know, a real conversation and negotiation about what they get. And it's interesting how it works both directions. For entrepreneurs who have a really good relationship and sort of have established clearly with each other the rules of engagement, oftentimes perplexing and interesting things happen. We had an investment in a company where one of the two co-founders after two years and change decided to leave. And he didn't ask for more vesting. He actually turned around and gave some of his stock back to the company because he didn't feel like he'd earned it. And he did it as, you know, in exchange for his severance. And and it wasn't a big severance. Maybe it was three months or six months. But he said, look, I'll give back this equity. If you give me three months of salary, then make my life a little bit easier. And that was actually a really generous move on his part. I've had the other end of the spectrum where you have founders who literally three, and I'm thinking of three of them, literally sat across the table from me and said, we will never, we, we cannot have vesting. We will be working together forever. And I was investing in a company that had already been around for 
two or three years. And at some point I stopped fighting with him. I'm like, guys, you know, I think, I think you're going to regret this, but I'm not going to like, I want to make this investment in, uh, you know, okay. And sure enough, about, you know, a year and change later, two of the founders fired one of the founders. Wow. But, you know, he got all his equity. And then about a year later, one of the other founders decided that he was going to disengage from the company, he stayed on the board, but he wasn't working for the company full time anymore. And then the company got bought for a lot of money. And it was a situation where the remaining founder who was really leading the charge uh, and was CEO struggled a lot because every, you know, whether he should keep building the business or whether he just should sell it because every incremental dollar of value he was splitting, he was getting one third because his other two co-founders were getting the other two thirds of it, even though they weren't the ones anymore that were working for the company. And so, you know, at the point the price got big enough, his view was, you know, let's, let's sell this and move on. That was okay. Like, you know, we're all happy, but you know, it, it wasn't, if I, if I think about the value allocation between the three founders for what they created, independent of my ownership as an investor, the value allocation wasn't appropriate. The last comment I'll make on this is, is a lot of entrepreneurs think that investing is a way for VCs to screw them. And I, you know, I would suggest that I'm sure there's plenty of bad behavior in the world, so I won't argue with that. But in general, what the vesting does is it essentially creates a commitment that's a long-term commitment and a way to have the conversation about that long-term commitment if things are not going well. And I think that it's important to investors when they're investing capital in a company, money in a company, to be able to have that conversation. It's very uncomfortable if you can't because going into every relationship assuming things are fine uh, and always going to be good is probably the wrong approach. Now, the flip side of it is, well, if you go into every relationship assuming it's going to be all f***ed up, well, you shouldn't go into the relationship in the first place, right? (laughs) You assume it's going to be good, but you want to have some mechanisms in case there are problems. And investing, I think, is a very balanced and fair one. Yeah, it's always an odd conversation. The example that you illustrated here and then in the book about these situations where a founder leaves and they carry their 15, 20 percent around with them and everyone else has to work to get them their payout. It's uh, it's not a good situation. So. All right. Brad, you also mentioned the employee option pool in your book. Uh, What is it? What is the standard amount? And can you give us a simple example to show how it works? Yeah, so I think most, certainly most angel and venture-backed companies and most tech startups, but also many other types of startups, have this notion that you want employees to have ownership in the business. And the most tax-efficient and structurally efficient way to do that is to create what's called an option pool. And what the option pool is, is is an amount of the company, some percentage of the company that exists so that you can grant options to employees those options represent a certain percentage of the company. You get a certain number of options. They get diluted just like everybody else. So over time, as you raise more money, the absolute number of shares and the absolute number of options you have would stay the same, but the percent ownership will decrease as you raise more money. But hopefully, correspondingly, the value of them will increase. Uh, The reason that there are options instead of shares is that if you granted shares to your employees, they'd have to pay tax on this illiquid thing called a share that you gave them. And that they'd actually have to pay cash tax on it and you they might or might not ever get anything for it. With an option, you actually, depending on how it's structured, but in general, you don't have to pay tax. 
And so you just hold the option, and if the company's worthless, then it doesn't matter. If uh, you know you you had the option, it didn't work. But if the company becomes successful, then you get the value of that option at the time. At early stage companies, generally the size of the option pool, the unallocated option pool, ranges from ten to twenty percent. So a lot of times when you do a financing. Your new investors will ask you to create an option pool as part of the financing that could be as much of twenty percent. I mentioned this earlier in the sort of you know economics calculation. Um, let's use a, a ten million dollar post money valuation because it's easier to do the math off of it. Let's assume that an investor is investing three million dollars in your company at a ten million dollar post money valuation. So if that's the investment, you would assume they're getting thirty percent of the company. That their pre money valuation is. $7 million, and as the founders, you're splitting up 70% of the company. However, if the investor then says, but I also want a 20% employee option pool, un- unallocated option pool built in to the pre-money, you know, in advance of the deal, then effectively $3 million is buying 30% of the company, just like before. 20% of the company is being allocated to this option pool, which has not been issued yet, and the remaining 50% is what the founders get. So in that case, essentially the 20% is coming out of the pockets of the founders in terms of it. If the investor didn't focus on that, but you still needed 20% of the equity in, in an employee pool after the fact, then it would come in after the $10 million. So your post money effectively would become $12 million. And you know your investors would get diluted proportionally. So their 30% would go down by 20% or they'd end up with effectively 24% of the company and they'd be contributing four of the 20 points and uh, 16 of the 20 points would come from the founders so they'd go down from 70% uh, to 54%. So the dilution still hits you but it just hits you in a different way. The, the, The size of that option pool is to some degree a negotiation. I like to say that you should just be realistic about what you're going to use. I mean, most early stage companies, as you're hiring people, that 10% option pool you know, is a reasonable number to start with. But if you really have three people and you raise a lot of money, having a 20% option pool might be more appropriate. You can always create more options when you use them up. So you know, there's a little bit of like, eh, it doesn't matter to get it exactly right. And it, it really comes back down to this notion of economics because the more of it that's built into the deal or pre-money, the less of the dilution is absorbed by the new investors. Do you ever find situations where it's split? Half of the option pool is at the pre and half is at the post, or is it sure. usually one or the other? Sure. And, and in that scenario, what I would say is, look, why, you know, if, if I was in an argument with somebody about the 20% and they're like, well, let's split 10, 10% pre and 10% post, you know, and, I, and if, let's assume I didn't care. I felt like the valuation I was getting was fine. I said, yeah, you know what? Let's just do 10% in the option pool. And, you know, if we need more options, we'll just grant them and we'll both be diluted. Or I might say, I'll tell you what, let's just put 15% in the option pool and leave it at that. And in the future, if we need more options, we'll create more options. Got it. So the final economic term I wanted to discuss is anti-dilution. How does this protect investors? What are the two most common varieties? And what advice do you have for minimizing the impact and or making sure that they never come into play? Yeah. So anti-dilution is a term that means... In the future, if you raise a round at a lower valuation or a lower price per share than this round, I, the investor, get some extra shares to make up the difference. That's what anti-dilution means. There are two types of anti-dilution. There's uh, what's called weighted average anti-dilution, and then there's full ratchet. Weighted average anti-dilution is typical and benign. 
I think it's a very down the middle term. It's very fair to everybody involved. It, it, you know, when it comes into play, it rarely amounts to a particularly big number. Oftentimes, when there's a financing, depending on the configuration of the financing, it's actually waived by the investors if it's not that material of, of an amount. But it, it does afford some downside protection if there's lower financing rounds in the future. So my advice to entrepreneurs is weighted average anti-dilution, don't worry about it. Full ratchet anti-dilution is much more severe. And it means if there's a round at some future date at a lower price per share, the current round is automatically adjusted to that price per share. So, you know, if you raise money right now at a $10 million valuation, and then a year later you raise more money at a $5 million valuation, the money that you raised at a $10 million valuation is effectively repriced so that it looks like that investment went in at a $5 million valuation. I really encourage entrepreneurs never to accept full ratchet and to uh, work very, very hard, especially early in the life of a company, uh, not to have that term in there. Again, at the beginning, it may not matter all that much. It matters some, but it may not matter all that much. But it, it certainly matters a lot if it gets inherited down the road. And it's a good indication that you don't have particularly good balance with your investors. You know, with, with full ratchet, the investors obviously have a motivation to increase the value of the company. That's why they're investors. But they also have this incredibly protective downside mechanism that, you know, if, if the valuation decreases some, well, their old investment looked like it gets invested at that new lower number. With, with weighted average, you know, they pick up a little bit of additional equity. It feels good. It's uh, uh, much more in the zone of it's not going to materially affect it. So uh, beware of full ratchet. Don't worry too much about weighted average. <laughs> yeah, my friends in town give me a hard time because I chose the full ratchet for the name of the show. And, uh, <laughs> and that is not a promotion for full ratchets. It was uh, merely because it was a catchy term. All right, let's move on to the control term side. So we talked about economic terms. Let's switch gears here and let's start with the board of directors. So how is the board selected and what is the standard makeup of an early stage board? Well, you know, a lot of early stage companies don't have a formal board or if they have a formal board, it's just, you know, one or two of the founders. And uh, I think that's a mistake. I, I wrote an entire book on this as well. It's a book called Startup Boards. And in that book, I spent a lot of time talking about the value of a board, especially at the early stages. I'd say typically post, you know, a seed round or an angel round, you'll often see a, a small board, you know, maybe three people, two of the founders and one of the investors. By the time you get to a venture round, you often have a five-person board. You know, that's usually the CEO and, and one of the other founders, two investors, and then an outside person that both sides pick typically, although sometimes it can be that the investor gets to pick it and sometimes it could be that the, uh, the founders get to pick that, that outside board member. As the companies grow over time, you'll often see that drift up to seven people. And the configuration there is usually VC heavy. So you typically have, you know, three or four VCs on the board now, depending on how much money you've raised. And, you know, your goal at that point should be to start to have VCs swap their seats for outside and directors, especially if you're on a path to going public. I would say that the other thing that's useful here to recognize there's value in there being an odd number it's sort of the default but vast majority of time you don't actually have a contentious voting dynamic that the board has to deal with you you can have some uh, voting dynamics that the investors are dealing with so the control provisions in the actual financing documents in some ways have more impact 
than the board vote. I think people like to have it be an odd number because it feels a little more comfortable if you end up, you know, with with controversy or confrontation. But even for an you know for an early stage company or a private company, if you end up in that situation on the board anyway, whether you have an even number of directors or an odd number of directors, you got issues that are going to be pretty deep issues you have to work through. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. Got it. And there are differing thoughts on the board observer. Uh, recently, we made a an investment in a company out here in Chicago, and we got a board observer seat. Can you talk about what that is and sort of the counter positions? Sure. A board observer is somebody who gets to sit in and participate in the board meeting, but isn't a formal voting member of the board. Uh, you know, observer rights vary. You can have observer rights that are look like you're a full participating member at the table in terms of the conversation, and then you can have observer rights that basically say you can sit in the room, but you can't say anything. Many VC firms bring and, and wire things in so that they can bring an observer, you know, a junior partner in the firm to the board meeting, other, uh, or, or, you know, associate in the firm to the board meeting. Other uh, firms like ours at Foundry Group, we don't have any associates or junior people, so we don't care one way or the other about having observer rights. We just have a board seat. Sometimes you have founders who are not on the board but get observer rights as part of a financing or a transition off the board. So a lot of times you might have a situation where you've got two or three founders on the board and through the financing, one of them leaves the board, but you know you give them observer rights so they can still come to the board meeting. That's a formal right. A lot of times they still have the informal right to come. But you know if they have the informal right and for some reason they're not wanted in the boardroom, <laughs> they get kicked out. So the observer dynamic sometimes is helpful there. And then, you know, last is, uh, while observers are, you know, have rights to, part, to be part of the board meeting, there is a closed session of the board where you kick the observers out of the room, typically. So if you have a contentious situation with one or more observers, what you do is you, as a board, uh, you literally just go into closed session and, you know, the observer can't observe or participate. I personally am not a huge fan of observers. I, I used to, at my previous firm, Mobius, we always had observer rights and people already always came to the board meetings and there were usually you know a partner and somebody else at the board meeting. And I, I really have grown weary of that. Um, a lot of times strategic investors get observer rights instead of board seats. Later stage investors get observer rights instead of board seats. Firms that invest get a board seat and an observer right. 
And, you know, when, when all of a sudden you're sitting in a room and there's 20 people in the boardroom, management plus, you know, six or seven, let's say five, five to seven board members plus five to seven observers, it's a mess. Yeah. It's way too many people and you can't have a real conversation and you can't really be very effective at what you're, you're talking about. The other thing that's I've come to struggle with is, is there, there really are two kinds of observers. There's the observers who are observers. They're observing. And then there's observers who, even though they're an observer, they believe they're a full member of the board. And for whatever reason, I'd say that there's a lot of tone deafness around this with uh, VCs as well as with angels who don't really have a good understanding of how a board should function. And suddenly, you know, you're in a room and you've got the right to be in the room, but you don't really understand why you're in the room or what you're doing. And so you can have some pretty negative effects on the dynamics and the conversation, especially, you know, when everything's going fine, it doesn't matter. But when things are not going fine, being really thoughtful and really precise about how you approach things starts to matter a lot. Next control term is protective provisions. Uh, What are the main things that a VC is trying to protect against with these provisions and how can they be helpful for the entrepreneur? Sure. I mean, the biggest ones are pretty straightforward. A VC doesn't want the entrepreneur to change the structure and nature of the VC's equity without the VC's permission. So a, a big part of the protective provision is all around the fact that you have to get the invest. I shouldn't say VC, it's investor, it applies to angels too. You, you have to get the investor's consent to make any structural changes in in their equity. You have to get their consent to issue new shares. You have to get their consent to, to create a new class of stock as a result of financing. Then there's some things around basic operations. You have to get their consent if you raise more than a certain amount of debt. If it's a company that's growing very rapidly, sometimes you have to get their consent to spend over a certain amount of money with one vendor. You might have to get their consent to be able to change the size of the board. Stuff like that. So these are these provisions where the investor explicitly, forget about the board, forget about management structure of the company, the investor explicitly wants, veto right is one way to think about it, and an affirmation right is probably a more powerful way to think about it, right? You have to get their consent to be able to do these things. You know, protective provisions, there's, you know, 10 or so that are pretty standard, most of the ones I just described. And uh, in the book, we talk, you know, in Venture Deals, we talk about what you can and can't push back on and what you should be worried about and situations why. You can find some investors who put a whole bunch of strange control provisions or protective provisions that make it look like they have operating control of the company. And for a venture-backed or an angel-backed business, I don't think that those are generally very appropriate. I mean, you see private equity firms that are majority owners in companies who own the companies anyway, so they get those rights by default. But sometimes you see some angel investors who came from that kind of environment who are often heavy-handed in terms of the protected provisions that they want. Personally, I think the simple way to describe it is protective provisions exist so the investor can't get arbitrarily and, you know, as long as they're balanced and as long as everybody knows what they have to ask for consent to do, they're rarely an issue. And in a downside case where they're an issue, sometimes it becomes a point of negotiation. But in, in an upside case, it's generally just good hygiene. So I haven't been doing this long enough to see how these things play out. But what happens if the entrepreneurs violate a protective provision? Well, you know. It, or it, anything in the term sheet sh- for that sh- Sure. I mean. You know, you you have a formal legal contract, right? And so, 
probably uh, doesn't help to spend a ton of time in court, which is part of the reason I asked. So, well, of course, but you know, it depends on how 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 egregious it is and what happens. And you know, one of the ticking time bombs that an entrepreneur doesn't doesn't want, and an investor doesn't want either, is you violate a provision, nobody does anything about it, the company becomes wildly successful. And then on the back of the company being wildly successful, all of a sudden, one or the other party points back at a provision that was violated and said, I should get some more money. So it's memorializing the rules so that there's clear rules of engagement. And a lot of companies violating one of the protective provisions, depending again on the, the control dynamics, you know, is a, is a firing offense. I mean, I've seen CEOs be fired for you know, violating a protective provision. Most of the time, it's it's a safeguard, right? You know, the raising debt is a good example. If you've got a company, it's pretty hard for a company to raise any meaningful amount of debt without support from its investors, right? So yeah. while the protective provision exists, it's probably not going to be something you can do anyway. It's pretty hard for a company to raise any meaningful amount of capital without consent from the existing investors because the new investors are going to want the consent of the old investors. However, you could definitely create fraudulent situations or situations where a founder is trying to, you know, I I don't have a protective provision. And so, you know, I'm going to have my my friend over here invest in the company at a very low price and dilute everybody and then turn around and re-grant me a whole bunch of equity. And that effectively dilutes my investors. Well, if there's no protective provision, theoretically, you could do something like that. In the case of a protective provision uh, for equity that's being issued, you know, on on lower price or less terms than the equity, you'd have to get the consent. So it wouldn't be a valid equity issuance without the consent. So I can't think of over you know the twenty years I've been doing this that I've I've ever been in in litigation because of this. But I, there have certainly been cases where having a protective provision of has forced. A difficult conversation and real negotiation between investors and entrepreneurs to sit down and work through the issues. Next, let's cover the drag along agreement provision. What ability does this provide to a subset of investors? You mentioned a majority of each class and majority of all shares in your book. What's the difference between these two most common situations? Well, I'll try to keep it this one simple. A drag along is a, a situation where it gives uh, a set of people the ability to drag along other shareholders in a particular voting context. And a lot of times the drag along provision is one that you want for either specific shareholders who are non-participants or founders who have left. So, you know, in a situation where somebody's no longer part of the company, but you want to be able to effectively vote their shares. I would say drag along often is a pretty healthy fight. Uh, when an investor wants to introduce it, it's often something that gets introduced into a separation agreement. So when somebody leaves the company, uh, you know, in exchange for whatever they get as part of the separation agreement, a drag along on their shares gets introduced. Got it. The final control term is conversion. Why would an investor require the ability to convert preferred shares to common? Depends on the structure of the, uh, you know, of the preferred share. In general, I would say that this, again, is a hygiene term, right? It explicitly says the investor has the control over whether they convert into common or not. And, you know, an investor is going to convert into common in the situation where it's in their financial interest, right? So, you know, we described a lot earlier, you know, participation and that sort of thing. If the company gets bought and being a common shareholder is going to be more advantageous than being a preferred shareholder, you want that right. And an example there could be, you could definitely see a scenario where an investor would offer, or sorry, uh, uh, an acquirer might offer $100 a share for the common, and 
a dollar a share for the preferred. In the absence of having the ability to convert, the investor would be kind of screwed. But if the investor has the ability to convert, which they always do, then the investor can say, well, I'll just convert to common and I'll take my $100 a share. Right. So yeah. it's, it's, it's sort of a way, it's, it's just a, it closes a way for there to be this sort of, okay, I have a different class of stock. And so somebody's buying different things from different people. Got it. So let's wrap up. Last question of the day. If you had to elevator pitch or sum up your approach or philosophy to investing, how would you describe it? Well, I, I wrote a post. I've written several versions of this same post. The most recent one was one I titled, Your Word Should Meet Your Actions. I think one of the biggest struggles in entrepreneurship and investing is you tend to have a lot of people on either side who have a view and and say certain things, but then don't back it up with the actual actions. They're either inconsistent or they're not clear, or in some in some cases, they're just full of shit. And I really believe it's important to be, we use the phrase internally within our partnership, brutally honest but kind. So we're very direct to each other, but we do it in a kind way. We try not to be ambiguous. We try not to let anything linger. And when we invest, I think it's the same kind of thing. We try not to let anything linger. It doesn't do anybody any good for something that to be in my head if I think it's relevant and important. So try to be direct and always try to have our words meet our actions. All right. His Twitter handle is at Feld. The Feld Thoughts blog, where he has over 30 posts on term sheets, is Feld.com. Of course, the VC site is foundrygroup.com. I highly encourage you pick up the Venture Deals book, as well as any of his others on the series of startups. Brad, thanks so much for the time and for helping all of us over the years with your transparency. Totally, Nick. Lots of excellent content covered by Brad today. Let's summarize a few of the key takeaways. So number one, preference and participation. First, we talked about preference, i.e. preferred shares versus common shares. While preferred shares are still equity and not senior to any debt, they are senior to common stock. So in the event that shareholders are paid out, those with preferred shares will receive their capital first. The standard in the industry is a one-times liquidation preference, which means that in the event of liquidation, the preferred shareholders can choose their liquidation multiple, often 1x the original purchase price, in lieu of their equity percentage uh, prior to any other payouts. So Brad walked us through the following example, and this is a simple example where we do not have to consider participation because there was no participation. So we've got a one-times liquidation preference. We have no participation. $10 million has been raised over the life of the business, and we'll assume it was at a $20 million post-money valuation. So through fundraising, 50% of the total equity has been distributed to investors in the form of preferred stock. Now, upon the sale of that business, the investors have a choice. They can either take one times the original investment amount of $10 million, i.e. the original purchase price, or they can take 50% their equity position of the liquidation value which is the current price. So if the company sells for $14 million, the investors will receive $10 million because they have the choice between 10 or 7. Uh, in this example, the remaining common stockholders, employees and founders, will end up with $4 million. So for this example, the break-even liquidation amount is $20 bucks, where the investor gets the same cash return of $10 million, whether they choose the original purchase price value or 50% of the sale price. If we assume a much higher exit price, let's say $100 million, then the investors are naturally going to choose the 50% equity distribution and take the $50 million as opposed to the 1x, their original investment of $10 million. All right, now let's transition into the participating scenario. 
Remember, with participation, you get your investment dollars back first, then you get 50% of what's left. So in the $14 million sale price example, the investors will get their money back, i.e. $10 million, plus they will get 50% of what remains, the $4 million. So they will get a total cash return of $12 million. And then the employees and founders are left with the remaining two. If, for example, the company has a sales price of $20 million, the break-even value from the previous example, investors are going to get their $10 million plus 50% of the remaining 10. So in this situation, the investors will get $15 million and the common stockholders will get $5 million. And with a $100 million sales price, investors are going to get their $10 million plus they're going to get 50% of the remaining 90, which is 45. So 45 plus 10, they will receive 55 million and the common shareholders will get 45. The last example I wanted to review is with capped participation. Recall that to analyze caps, you first have to look at the simple non-participating return to investors. And when that does exceed the cap, then participation doesn't apply. When the simple non-participating return is less than the cap, then participation does apply. So in the first scenario, at a sales price of $14 million, the simple non-participating return to investors was $10 million. So if we assume a cap of 3x, that return is less than 3x of their original investment. 3x of their original investment would be $30 million. Their $10 million return is less than that. So participation does apply. And the payout to investors is not the simple scenario, it's the participating scenario, which was $12 million. In scenario two, at a sales price of $20 million, again, the simple return of $10 million is less than the 3x of the original investment. So participation again applies, and the payout to investors is the $15 million from the participation example. And finally, at a sales price of $100 million, the simple return of $50 million does exceed the 3x cap. The $50 million is more than the $30 million. So participation does not apply, and the investors will receive the payout of $50 million from the non-participating example. I've summarized all these scenarios in a table that is now posted on the website. Uh, There were quite a few numbers, so if you'd like to quickly review, you can take a look at the key takeaways for this week's episode. And these are the straightforward examples. Remember that Brad mentioned stack participation as well in scenarios where there are multiple rounds of investment with stack preferences. All right, the second key takeaway is on vesting. Recall that Brad discussed founder vesting and how that it's seen as investor-friendly. But often it can be more important for dynamics between co-founders than it is between the investor and the founder. He has seen multiple situations where a founder leaves and retains his or her equity position. Then the remaining founders have to continue working to build the company and receive no greater percentage of the business than the founder that departed. This can be a very difficult situation and can be very demotivating for the entrepreneurs that stay on. The last key takeaway is on conversion. As Brad outlaid, there may be situations where a strategic acquirer offers $100 per share for common stock and $1 per share for preferred. This is one of the few cases where it's more advantageous for the investors to convert to common for a better financial payout. And you will find that conversion is nearly always included in a term sheet, just in case, particularly with a preference. And despite spending a lot of time on different liquidation preference examples, I'd like to use this week's tip to outline the strategic implications of preference. 
So with that, let's move on to the tip of the week, which is great risk merits great reward. Upon investment, an angel investor can receive either preferred stock or common stock. The key thing to note in Brad's overview is that preferred shareholders can choose to be paid their liquidation preference prior to the common shareholders. So just because you have 20% equity in a company, if it's common stock, you may not get 20% of the proceeds. While Brad mentioned that a one-times liquidation preference is standard, I have received term sheets from entrepreneurs that already had a lead investor that include 2x and 3x liquidation preference. There are also a number of rights that are often secured through preferred stock. For example, pro rata rights that we discussed last week. Also, information rights, rights of first refusal, co-sale rights, anti-dilution, as well as some others. While we haven't covered all these items, it becomes clear that preferred stock is a way to protect and support one's investment. On top of that, as we touched on, if later stage investors negotiate for participation, then they will get their original investment, or some multiple of their original amount, back before the common shareholder's equity percentage is applied to the remaining capital. I recently had an opportunity to invest in a very exciting startup in Chicago called Scholastica. It is run by some University of Chicago alums that have a vision to reinvent the publishing industry, and I believe that they have a really good shot of doing just that. After running them through my evaluation process, they scored very high, and it was a go. Unfortunately, I was not a participant in their round. Ultimately, the reason I didn't proceed was because their offering was for common stock, and while I would love to have a piece of the company, the risk of being watered out of a cap table by subsequent later series preferred investors is high. A great fear that every investor is trying to avoid is having a huge win only to have it yield a small return because the investment was not appropriately protected. Now, this company did successfully close their fundraise round. I'm happy for them and I wish them the best success. This is not a knock on them. It's not them that will cause an issue later on. It's the subsequent VC investors that will require preferred stock and may negotiate for participation. And it's the startup's right to raise money at the terms that they prefer. And clearly, there were other investors that did not think the risk of common stock should preclude an investment. But for me, a big win must yield a big return. And the risk was too high. Hopefully, they do another raise in the near future and I can get in. Maybe at a higher valuation, but at least in a preferred position. So step back and remember the industry that we're all in. It is inherently risky. And a few great successes must compensate for a number of losses. Venture investing enables both change and evolution, as well as disruption and revolution. As an investor, you are empowering innovation, value creation, and helping shape the future, something few investors in other asset classes can claim. And great risk merits great reward. As a venture investor, if you choose well, you're entitled to it. All right, that's it for today. Special thanks to Brad for his time and knowledge. Jump on the site at fullratchet.net for show notes and links. I'll have a link to Brad's book there, and I think it's a necessary tool for anyone that is serious about startup investing or startup fundraising. Uh, next week, we address the number one startup killer. We'll talk about what it is and how to make sure your startups are proactive and don't fall victim to it. My Twitter handle is at the full ratchet. The site is fullratchet.net. I started this podcast as a fun side project, and it's a bit more work than expected. Um, I can see why there aren't many venture capitalists doing it. But if you enjoy the content, all I ask is you give me a follow, a review on iTunes, or sign up for the newsletter. 
Okay, thanks for listening. Uh, This episode was really a joy to do, and I hope we have many more like it. So always remember, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. See you next week. We'll be right back.